0: Open your Bibles to Isaiah 56, and we are going to be in Isaiah 56 and in Isaiah 57 today. As God now intends to show us who we are and to help us see who we truly are before Him. This is important as we have seen in our study of Isaiah and the description of a suffering servant who is become the guilt offering for sins so that we can have forgiveness. And you have then Isaiah describing a glorious invitation for people to come, to come to living waters, to come to be satisfied, to come and find true life, to stop wearying themselves for things that are false bread and do not truly satisfy. But our struggle is that we don't see things that way. We don't see the need for what God is offering and we assume that we are doing well in this life and often miss how much we need God. And so we stand here in the middle of Isaiah 56 through 57 where now God simply just says, now let me show you your condition. Let me show you who you are. Will you see yourself for who you truly are? And then I will show you what I'm going to do for you. And it becomes really a glorious text that we'll look at this morning. In Isaiah 56 and from verse 9 through chapter 57 and verse 2, you have first of all the leaders of Israel at this time being condemned as simply worthless leaders. They are selfish leaders. They are not concerned for the welfare of the people, but they are only concerned for themselves. I know that's a surprise and all that you deal with on a regular basis in life and your are That you've never encountered uh, selfish leaders who are only concerned about themselves. It never happens. And unfortunately, as much as that happens in the physical world and on the job and in the world around us. It also happens in the spiritual realm. And here are people who are designated to be leaders over the flock of Israel to help the people of God. And rather than being concerned for their souls and concerned for their spiritual well-being, They are concerned about themselves alone. And we get so many interesting descriptions of what they are doing. For example, in verse 12, they say, Come, they say, let us get wine and let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, great beyond measure. They don't care about what's happening with everybody else. Notice you have a description in chapter 57, verse 1, that the righteous man perishes... And no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away. Well, no one understands. You have a picture of these leaders being consumed by their physical appetites. They're more concerned about their comfort, their well-being, their welfare, all their gain, whatever they can do for themselves. And so God comes to them and says, you have a serious problem because you're concerned about yourself. You're concerned about your physical welfare rather than the spiritual being and Spiritual welfare of yourself and of your flock. And one of the primary jobs of religious leaders and teachers is to be concerned spiritually for the flock, to have a concern in what they see happening to them and to do something about that, to warn them, to instruct them, to give them the help that they need. But you have in chapter 56 and verse 10 his watchmen are blind they are all without knowledge, they are all silent dogs that cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite and they never have enough. Great picture. He describes the people as being completely destroyed spiritually and those who are to help and give the warning and if you will, to use the language to bark out and say, watch out, are mute and silent, sleeping and slumbering and not caring about what's going on. And so he puts his finger on the religious leaders and says, you understand you have a responsibility over your flock. You have a responsibility over your people. A picture that is used repeatedly in the New Testament, but Hebrews chapter 13 gives a great picture of that in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And here in Israel are leaders who do not grasp that, who are only concerned about their physical appetites and their physical desires, and are not concerned about the spiritual welfare of those who are below them that they need to be watching out for, that they need to be taking care of and warning and instructing and helping. And rather than him spending an awful lot of time talking about the failure of the leaders, He now turns to the flock and he says, well, guess what though? You're not any different. Yes, your religious leaders have failed you in being spiritual leaders and in teaching you the ways of God and being concerned about your spiritual welfare and your service before God. He then turns to the rest of them and tells them that they're just as bad off. Verse 3 of Isaiah 57. But you draw near sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valleys, is your portion they they are your lot to them you have poured out a drink offering you have brought a grain offering shall I relent for these things on a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed and have looked on their nakedness. You journeyed to the, the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your invoice far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way. But you did not say, it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. He just gives this big list of all the things that they're doing wrong. And as he describes all they're doing, he asks such an important question in verse 4. He just says, whom are you mocking? In our language, I think that would say, who do you think you are? Do you think you're getting away with what you are doing? Do you think that you're mega sins and multiplying of sins and passionate acting in all of these sins? Do you think that you're able to do this and God does not know and God does not see what you are doing? And what he does is he just lists all kinds of things of how they are breaking the covenant. He describes sexual desires. He describes them making covenants with the nations. He describes even the the offering up of their children. And here they are in verse 6 describes you have your grandmother And shall I relent for these things? And to sum up all of these sins, it would boil down to the people are just like the leaders. They are consumed by their physical appetites and their physical desires. They want to do what they want to do. And they're going to participate in the things that they're going to participate in. And so he uses some. Fairly graphic language of the sexual depravity and sexual idolatry that's going on in that time as he uses this imagery of you're committing these sins all over the countryside, up on the mountains, everywhere, behind the closed doors. And you, who are you mocking? Do you think that God does not know, that God is not aware of these things? In fact, this will certainly bring God's judgment. And how sad it is that so often I think we have the tendency to think that we can pursue our quests for physical desires and pursue our quests for the things of this world as if we're somehow okay before God and still have a right relationship with God, as if things are acceptable before God and we will not pay consequences for that. You notice the literal imagery there that your footnote might have there. It even kind of says it when it says in verse 4, Whom do you open your mouth and wide and stick out your tongue? Uh, we understand what that idiom looks like. You're just sticking your tongue out at God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to pursue my passions and my desires. I'm going to go after all of these things. And God is saying, it is in effect that you are sticking your tongue out at me. You're mocking me. You are saying before God that the things of this life and this world matter more than pursuing him. And I submit to you that is why God cares about these things so much. is because we are revealing that our devotion and our love is really not for Him. We are revealing that by engaging in these sins and following after the desires of our heart, That we are more concerned with the physical realm and that truly our love and our devotion and our desires are for the things of this life, for the things of this world. We are showing ourselves to be a lover of this world rather than being a lover of God. And we live in a time right now that it's easy as Christians to fall into that trap where we have a world that... Mocks God continually. And these sins that we commit are a mocking of God. To pretend that we are worshippers, disciples, followers of God. And yet engage in pornography, watching nakedness on television, movies, sexual relations before marriage, having affairs, sexual immorality. Fulfilling fleshly desires, pursuing our pleasures, seeking out our physical lusts. This is what he's describing from verse 4 to verse 8. Is you're pursuing all of these things... And then I think it is so interesting that in verse 10, he says, and nobody ever stops and recognizes the hopelessness of the pursuit. Here in the context of verses 9 and 10, here they are wandering these long distances to go make covenants with other nations. They don't want to trust in the Lord. They want to trust in what they can see. So they'll go make a covenant with other nations. And they're weary by the journey. And he says, nobody stops and says, this is a foolish pursuit. This is a waste of time. And Isaiah has drawn out that concept again and again in terms of idolatry. Don't you know that your pursuits are foolish? You continue to pursue these things in this life and try to seek and fulfill your fleshly, worldly desires, and it is hopeless. It is not going to work. You see how Isaiah 55 connects in where he came to them and said, Why are you wearying yourself for things that do not satisfy? I'm trying to offer you true bread and true water and true life. And here you are going after things that are not bread. And then he comes to a conclusion there in Mount verse 8 and he says, That's why you have to forsake your thoughts and forsake your ways. And now he recognizes we need a good argument for that because we just think, no, no, I want to do what I want to do. I can worship God and pursue all these things still. I'll keep pursuing the world. I'll keep pursuing my desires. You say, don't mock God. You're sticking your tongue out at Him and saying that you can find desires and fulfillment and satisfaction here in this world and think you're still a lover of God. You're not. You're not. This is why God cares about these things. Because it's one or the other. You are either a lover of God and you are willing to forsake the pursuits of the desires of this life and of the flesh. Or you're a lover of the things of this world and you pursue your desires and your lusts and you are not a lover of God. And listen to the weight then of verse 11, notice he says in verse 11 of Isaiah 57, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? I have, have I held my peace even for a long time and you did not fear me? I declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. I found that verse staggering. He says, Here's what God says. You think you've got all your good deeds before God, right? Isn't that kind of how we work as humans? Well, but yeah, I know I'm pursuing all of these physical things and I'm doing these things that aren't right and I'm going after my desires and my lust and I think this is okay and I'm doing it behind the closet and I'm doing it behind the door and nobody knows, nobody sees, just like he described here. But I have all these good deeds before God. I'm a good Christian. I'm not wicked like everybody else out there. And here's God saying, sure, I'll promote and declare all your righteousness and all of your deeds. Let me declare them all to you. You've got a great list of all those good deeds. And then he says, and it will not profit you. And you go, whoa. We have this idea that as long as I do more good things than bad things, I'm okay with God, right? As long as I keep that teeter totter in balance, I've got a little more good things over here. I'm all right, so you know I'm doing all right over here. So it's okay that I've got keeping all these kinds of sins in the closet, nobody knows about. I'll just kind of keep letting my heart pursue these desires, and I'll keep going out those things because hey, I'm okay with God, right? He says, "I will proclaim your righteous deeds and tell you that they matter as nothing before God." The day of judgment's not going to go down where we're going to stand up there and go, well, I went to church every day and I wasn't as bad as my neighbor. And you know, I... Didn't say a whole lot of cuss words, never really stole from anybody, didn't do anything bad, didn't cheat on my spouse. I'm a pretty good person, right? So, yeah, I know I've got all these things that I was unwilling to let go of. I know there were these sinful things that I know you said I shouldn't have done, but, but they're okay, right? Because even though I wanted to keep doing them and I would not relinquish them, it's okay because I'm kind of good and it's all right. This is the mind of Israel. We're the people of God. We're better than everybody else. We have righteous deeds. And so our sinful things that we do in secret are okay, right? And so that's why he says, shall I relent for these things? In verse 6, do you think I'm going to pull back my judgment that is due to you simply because you've offered some offerings and you do things that you think are righteous? When in fact, you do not recognize the hopelessness of what you are doing. It is a reminder to us that we are in a serious pit before God. And that's what he wants us to see. Do you understand your condition before God? Do you see the depths of your sin? Do you see that, yes, you might be doing righteous deeds, but that is not your justification That is not going to be the place that you're going to stand and go, well, I did these good things, so I must be okay, right? He shoots those things down and He says, I will declare your righteousness, but they're not going to profit. He doesn't say you don't have any. He says they're not going to matter. They don't matter because as verse 13 describes, what you care about are your idols. Because that's what you truly love. Your love is not for God. He says, so when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Because that is what is most important to you. Those are the things that you treasure in your heart. Those are the things that you value. And he's trying to pull the mirror out and say, do you see where you stand before God? Do you see the necessity of what God is calling for us? That our righteous deeds are nothing before him. And they certainly do not justify us before him. This is what makes verses 14 to 21, I believe, just absolutely shocking. Listen to verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way remove every obstruction from my people's way. Here's an interesting picture. All right, those who will trust in me, that's how verse 13 ended. If you will trust in me, if you'll find your refuge in me, not in your idols, stop loving your idols, stop pursuing your desires, stop trusting in your wants and your desires, trust in God, make Him your fortress, make Him your refuge. And then he says, now here's the call in verse 14 here is God saying prepare the way but do you notice the difference it sounds similar to something we've studied in Isaiah but it's not the same at all here he says it in verse 14 prepare the way remove every obstacle for my people's way now here is God picturing this, this image and saying Get all the obstacles out of the way for my people to be able to come to me. Now that might ring a bell to Isaiah 40, right? In Isaiah 40, you have this whole comfort section kick off with the call of remove all the obstacles. He's telling the people, the Lord is coming. Get all the idols out of your heart because God is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. What is John the Baptist doing? He's telling everybody, repent, get all that stuff out of your life because God is coming. Get ready, prepare. Notice the difference that happens here. Where now he's not telling the people, you get your hearts ready. He's making a call and say, get the obstacles out of the way. Get the road ready for my people to come. So that they can come on the staff. And this is glorious of what Isaiah is doing here. Because he's helping us see something very, very important. And it's simply this. If rescue depends upon me, it's not going to work out very. Because I'm trying to do Isaiah 40 and verse 3. And I'm trying to get all the idols out of my heart. And I'm trying to remove every obstacle and every obstruction. And I'm trying to clear the way. And you know what I find out what happens tomorrow? So there's another one there. And there's another idol to go fight with. There's another sin to go battle. It seems to be always an obstacle that stands in my way. Isaiah comes along and says, Now you understand. Therefore, I will send out a call to clear the path, to clear the way, so that my people will come to me. Isaiah 53 is the description of that answer. Jesus becomes the obstacle remover, He makes it possible. For us to come to God. Because if it stands completely on myself. To get all of my sin obstacles out of the way. Sounds good today. It's not going to be good tomorrow. Probably not the next day either. I need somebody to do something. I need somebody to deal with these obstacles. I need somebody to intervene. I need somebody to be a solution for my sins. And here is God saying, I'm going to remove these obstacles. I'm going to clear the way for my people. And we have to appreciate God in that. And we cannot appreciate the invitation of what God is offering His people until we see our condition before Him and see God saying, I will remove the barriers. I will make it possible possible for you to come to me and that's what makes this next verse even more staggering as much as I was blown away by verse 12 and I was blown away by verse 14 listen to verse 15 for thus says the one who is high and lifted up and inhabits eternity whose name is holy I begin to read that and I go that's not going to go well for me here, doesn't to say, thus says the Lord. You know, we kind of go bland. Okay, this says the Lord. No. Thus says the high and lofty and exalted one, and his name is holy. And immediately my mind goes, well, I've got nothing to do with this. You just killed me in the earlier part of this chapter. Yeah, I'm full of sin. I've got all of these idols. I've got all these things that I've got in my heart. And I'm trying to rip them out, but it's not working very well. And here is God who comes in and says, Do you understand who I am? Remember how the Apostle Paul used that image? He alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. You're supposed to hear the name of God like that and go, He is so separate, He is so high, He is so holy, we have no business being around Him at all, for we are sinful. Well, look what He says. Verse fifteen: For thus says the One who is high and lifted up, and who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy: I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. If I read that, I go. You've got to be kidding me, God. You are a high, holy, exalted God who dwells in unapproachable light, whose dwelling place is in the heavens, who dwells in a holy place, who also dwells with those who come to him with a contrite, broken spirit. And that's supposed to resonate that he doesn't say, Now I dwell with the perfect. I dwell with the righteous. I dwell with the pious or the religious. These are the things that we want to fill in right here. I dwell with those who are broken and crushed by sins. I dwell with people who see themselves for who they truly are. Who recognize their standing before God. Who recognize their brokenness in sinful ways. And notice what he says that he does there in the middle of verse 15. He says, also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit, what's he going to do? To revive the spirit of the lowly And to revive the heart of the contrite. This fits Isaiah 55. He says, I will give you life. Those who can dwell with me. Those who I will give life. Are those who are of contrite heart. Those who are broken by sin. Those who see themselves, that they are dead in their sins, those who see the error of their ways, those who are crushed because of their sinfulness before God, he says, they are the ones that I will give life to. Those are the ones that God is looking for. Those are the ones whom God will receive. And it is staggering because... He knows our ways. That's what he describes in verse 17 where he says, because of their iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and I was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. He kept sinning. Look at verse 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. A mind-blowing declaration by God. I know what they've done. I've seen their sins. I was angry at their sins. I've seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will comfort them. What a picture that he offers here. I will heal them, verse 18. I will lead them. I will restore comfort to him and his mourners. This is the offer to those who will be broken in the heart. Who will be broken by sin. Can I challenge you please to be always broken by your sins? This is what God desires. That when you have failed today, that that still hurts. And it keeps you humble before your God. And that we never stare at our sins and say, Oh well, I will just keep doing what I want to do. The picture of Israel is doing just that. Hidden in the closet doing what they want to do and their devotion and love is not for God. And His call to His people is not, well, now you've got to live perfect. No. God says, I will clear the way. I will clear the obstacles. But I want brokenness. I want your love for the Lord to be so great that when you sin, it crushes your heart. I submit to you, this is where repentance and confession begins. Repentance is not, I'm sorry. Confession is not, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repentance and confession are driven from the broken heart. From the contrite heart because of sin. Who sees that we are dead in our sins and that we need the life that only God can give. God says to the contrite in heart, I will restore that person. And then did you see what he said there in verse 19? What he does? He will create the fruit of the lips. The lips that in earlier in chapter fifty-seven and in verse four are mocking God and sticking the tongue out at God, saying, I'm doing whatever I want to do, I don't care. I'm going to act in such a way and I'm going to remove the barriers so that I will create on your lips now, rather than a mockery of God, a praise of God. I'm going to radically change your life. I'm going to change your words and I'm going to change your ways and I'm going to heal them. And this is the strength that God supplies as He changes our rebellious, sinful hearts so that our lips will praise the Lord and no longer mock Him. And here is the picture of God who is willing to dwell with those who are broken by their sins. That God will heal you, that God will comfort you, that God will restore when you are crushed by your wicked ways. But did you notice verse 21, 20 and 21? He just gives a reminder here and he says, but understand something. There's no peace for those who are not crushed by their sins. Verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. What a beautiful picture that God presents. Will you put away your desires of going after all of these worldly things? physical pursuits, desires, lusts, will you put those things away and see that I am offering you true life, true satisfaction? Isaiah 55. And then he says, now, do you see your condition before God? Do you see your sinful ways? Do you see that our sins have greatly separated us from our God? Do you see your condition before God? Do you see how we deserve the wrath of God for we have turned away from Him? And we continue to do these things. And God says, here's what I want you to do. Will you be broken by your sins? Will you be crushed by what you've done? Will you always carry that? Of a broken and contrite heart. For that is what God desires. And God comes in and says. If you will love me. So that you will hate your sins. And you will be crushed by those actions. And you will have that contrite. Humble heart before God. That always sees God. As the high lifted up. Who inhabits eternity. Name is holy. And here we are down here in our sins. If we will always keep that. He says. I will lead you. I will comfort you. I will heal you. I will give you life. It's a message of hope. It's an unbelievable message of hope that God has done everything to remove the obstructions so that even though we continue to have all of these sin problems and continue to fall short, if every day you are broken by that, which generates that confession and that repentance to God is your contract before your God because you have fallen short again. The high and holy and lifted up God does not turn to us and say, it's too late, it's over, it's done, your sins are too vast, your sins are too many, it's too, too late. The high, holy, lifted and exalted God says, I will dwell with you. And I will give you life. That should put the praise of God on our lips. And change everything about how we live before our God. Before your psalm looks out, we'll sing an invitation. And we invite you to find hope in the grace of Jesus. And that you will thank the Lord God for Jesus who removes the obstacles who takes the barriers out of the way, that though we have fallen short of His glory and do not deserve to come anywhere near the presence of the Holy God, through the blood of Jesus, it is not possible. It is possible for God to give us life. It is possible for God to give us comfort. It is possible for us to have peace with our God and be restored to Him. If you will see yourself for where you are and who you are, If you will see your condition before your God, that you are full of sin, you are undeserving of any good thing that God has to offer, it does not matter what righteous deeds you think you can come up with, we stand condemned before our God. Be broken by those sins and turn your heart back to God every moment, every day. If you have not begun your walk with the Lord, will you do that today? If you are broken by your sins, will you repent of those sins? Because you are upset and seeing what we have done to violate the character of an awesome God that we serve. Turn away from those sins. Confess Jesus as the Son of God, not just merely in words, but because He rules. And He is the Lord and Master that you will follow and that you will serve. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And in that, your sins are washed away. You begin to walk with your Lord Jesus. Do it from the heart and bring your sins to Christ. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?